Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul McKenzie, one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my privilege to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Chris isn't here this morning. Uh, it was his original plan to be here this morning, um, but on their vacation plans of leaving later today, their flights got changed, and uh, so thus they couldn't make it. So he asked if I'd quickly step in, and that was fine. Uh, and, and really, I come and not just like I'm setting a new casual attire to 2020. Um, my shirt actually has two purposes. My hat really only has one, and it's not all that serious. Uh, but something happened to me over the past month four times. I think if it was just like once or twice, I could excuse it. Before, I was like, okay, I need to at least make comment because it really struck me as odd. Uh, four different times last month, I was just kind of in and about the community at different places, engaging in conversations. And it was at least a couple interactions into the conversation that's, that the person I was talking with is like, oh, I know who you are. I recognize you. You work at South Spring. But the weird thing is they all had some similar vein of, but I didn't recognize you with a hat on and in t-shirts. Uh, I only recognized you by your voice. And I was like, this is a strange occurrence. I've never had this in my life because essentially, besides the three hours on Sunday, maybe 98% of the time, this is what I look like. Like, this is, this is really it. And so I thought, well, at least I'll take the opportunity to say, take a good look, I guess. <laughs> Chances are, if I see you outside of this place, don't be shocked. I'm not going incognito by putting on a hat. It's just the way that I am. Now, I won't actually preach the whole time with the hat on. I'll go ahead and take it off. Um, but the shirt, I told you, did serve two purposes because uh, today we actually are going to continue our discussion uh, over identity, the identity of who we want to be as South Spring Baptist Church um, by this morning taking a consideration of Philippians chapter 2. Um, so if you have your Bibles ready, you can open them up, turn them on, you can navigate over to Philippians 2. Here in a minute, we're going to be reading out of the ESV version. Uh, I do want to say, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach down into, look down in the racks in front of you. You can ask somebody to pass one down to you. And I want to say that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you could call your very own, then please take that one as a gift from us to you. We know that your time will be blessed as you spend in it. Um, but our aim, so really, again, Chris was hoping to do both of these uh, two weeks, kind of as we've come off of the book of John, uh, and really kind of over the New Year's, a time when everybody's setting up New Year's resolutions and kind of introspectively looking at their lives and, and, and proclaiming at least what their goals are, what they want to be or how they may want to change. Um, this, this was the time that Chris wanted to look through, uh, specifically look through uh, these, these key concepts of who do we want to attain to be? Who do we want to strive to be as a body, as South Spring Baptist Church? And last week, he started uh, by talking about three pillars. If you weren't here last week, go back online. It's worth uh, your time. But he, he, he basically talked about three concepts that are essential to the life and the ministry and the aims of South Spring. Uh, he talked about the concept of devotion. Uh, he also talked about the concept of hospitality, and then he wrapped it all up talking about the concept of discipleship. So those, those we'd say are our three pillars um, that we want to be people who are defined by devotion. Uh, we want to be people who are marked with a characteristic of hospitality, and we want to do, do so all through an avenue of discipleship. And when we were um, talking again about how we're going to look at, uh, how we're going to continue this conversation a second week, uh, it really hit us of also one of our other, at least aims or core tenets, is that we would be people who are serious about Scripture, who don't take Scripture lightly or don't 
twist scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean, but to take scripture for what it says and for what it has the power only it can do, which is change our lives. Uh, And so we thought it would be amiss that if we just were talking about these pillars and we didn't actually just stop and take a section of scripture uh, and really kind of bring some light to it or draw some uh, points out of it. And when we were considering what passage of scripture uh, we could do, the notion of Philippians 2 came up. Uh, because we, we realized that uh, even though Chris years ago challenged the whole congregation to memorize the entire uh, book of Philippians, and if you did, you got one of these, these t-shirts, uh, and really even every year on Wednesday nights, at least one of the Wednesday nights, we do what Chris calls the uh, Philippians 2 Awards, where we gather together and we look at the concepts that are present here in this chapter, and we nominate those people that we see reflect that well and encourage us in that, and so it's a great time of encouragement. But we realized if you weren't coming this long to this church, or you haven't been coming on Wednesday nights, uh, then you may never have heard this, or some of the teachings and the explanations on Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and so we thought this would be a perfect time to then continue our conversation last week into this week by taking in consideration of this passage that's so formative as a backdrop uh, for, again, how we align ourselves and how we do ministry here at South Spring. And it was interesting because while I did it, while I was looking at this whole chapter, a couple things quickly came to mind. The first was, there's no way I'm going through the entire chapter. Uh, It is so rich. It is so full of things. To do it in any amount of detail would take an entire year. And for all of you that are still recovering from two years in the book of John, I don't want to put you into that quite yet. Uh, And so instead, we're not going to cover all of it, uh, but instead we're going to highlight some, some things about these pillars that I think are found that are, are probably appropriately found here in this passage. I'd never really done that before in my time of Philippians 2. I've never looked at it in the light of coming off of last week's sermon. Because in all reality, we're going to see some key concepts, some key definitions to some of these same pillars found in the passage that we're going to consider together. Really, if you look at it as just a, an outline of it, verses 1 through 5 um, will tell us a definition of hospitality in its purest form. That if we don't understand this, then we're not going to get the next thing. Also, in 6 through 13, it's going to talk about uh, devotion. It, too, is going to provide a pretty good, simple, working definition of what it is to be one who is devoted to God, what it means to be devoted to God. And then in the last part, 14 through 30, uh, you can actually see discipleship as the model that's lived out in application. Now, again, admittedly, We're not even going to get through the whole passage, and we're not even going to get through all those three tenets. So I'm going to leave discipleship uh, up to you as kind of your your time this afternoon with family or over lunch or even this week if you want to finish reading this this chapter and to see how discipleship um, plays itself out. Because Paul makes this fantastic argument in 1 through 5 that he uh, comes to a conclusion and illustrates by Christ himself in the very next section, 6 through 13, and then his application How he naturally applies it comes from his own definition of how he lives out discipleship. Where in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he gives this definition of discipleship as follow me as I follow Christ. Or as ESV says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so for the application of this whole passage, Paul is essentially going to point to his own life. And now he's doing this like Christ. And then he's going to point to the life of two disciples, specifically Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
But again, so discipleship is there. We're not going to spend our time there for the sake of uh, just the brevity of the time we have together. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first main swath, maybe the first 11 verses all together, so that we can really consider some of these key concepts in Paul's arguments that apply towards hospitality and apply towards devotion. Now, Chris also, because wanted me to make mention, and it was a good conversation for us to have, um, because I normally, when I teach up here, I always get to a place that I invite y'all to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. And, and I've explained there's lots of motivations of why, really, it's just a personal thing. I like doing it. Um, but even Chris was like, you should make mention again of, if we are a people who are serious about God's Word, you know, explain, like, again, this is why you have people stand, is because you want to be a person serious about God's Word. And it was a great way that he said it, because he actually said it as because you are a person who is convicted by scripture's great worth. And I said, actually, probably more of my motivation for doing this is because, yes, I hope to be that person. But in all reality, every time I invite you to stand, I'm confessing alongside of you that I'm not holding scripture to the weight that it, it is worth. In essence, what every time when I invite you to stand, in my mind, what plays out is this is the easy thing. Physically changing our orientation is something we can do. It's, it's, for most of us, it's, it's easy. It doesn't take a lot of effort. And so in the idea of, of, of taking the consideration of God's word and physically changing our own appearance, that's the easy work. That's what we can accomplish. But every time we do that, it's a reminder of the desperation we have for God to accomplish only what he can. Because we can change our physical attributes, but only he can change our spiritual posture. Only he can change and transform our spiritual lives. And so, in essence, again, as I invite y'all to stand, remind yourself of that, is that if we are standing, we're doing the easy part together, all proclaiming that we are one in desperation for him to do what we can't, which is transform us with his very words. So I invite you to stand as we read scripture together, starting in verse one of 2 Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God for the giving of his word. Y'all may be seated. Such a rich text here. And again, we could spend far, far uh, too long just kind of even delving into all the 
smallest of details here and really their theological significance. I mean, volumes upon volumes of work have been written just on this passage alone. Uh, there's, there's concepts here dealing with the nature of Christ's divinity, uh, dealing with his humanity, dealing with his power, dealing with his knowledge, dealing with his will, dealing with his glory. Uh, all of these things, if you know anything about church history, um, this passage alone has been the spark for so many conversations and debates about such concepts. Um, but our aim this morning, hopefully, is to not look microscopically, but instead to look telescopically. And what I mean from that is I think this is Paul's aim. I don't think Paul wants us, again, it's not that it's wrong to, and I think it could be right, we could delve into the deepest natures of all these details in Scripture and find God's revealed truth being far more insurpassable than anything we can comprehend. But I think the main goal, the main goal of the consideration of this passage from Paul is that when we look through this lens, we have no other ability than to see Jesus for who Jesus is and for what he's done for us. And I think, again, this is why we're going to look telescopically. We want to look through this passage and hopefully write ourselves to get an accurate understanding of who is this saving Messiah. And so with that, I, I, I want to start with a little bit of some maybe background in, in context, really probably because we're just jumping into one chapter. Um, but this, this little kind of cute outline that I gave about um, really our pillars and, and looking at it through the lens of hospitality, devotion, uh, and again, even discipleship, I think these are present notions here. But this really isn't how Paul defines outlines or defines this argument. Um, there's some truths here that we're pulling into our own uh, outline, but Paul's actually accomplishing a lot more with this uh, chapter and this whole letter. Um, in fact, this letter is, is one of the, arguably the most pastoral letters Paul writes to any church. Uh, it is very personal and it is very positive. Uh, unlike some of the other um, epistles that he writes where he speaks very boldly against their wrong action and then calls them to repentance by, by presenting the right way of living, we don't really get that harsh rebuke and firm instruction here. Uh, again, it's, it's very, very positive. Um, this is why sub-themes of joy, uh, of thanksgiving, of appreciation, are, are, of, of even humility, are woven all throughout this book. Um, and, and it's because Paul is, uh, is motivated. He looks at this, this church that is in Philippi. He sees the work that they're doing. He sees the work that they've done for him. And he's, he's celebrating with them that work, and he's encouraging them to stay on that path. In essence, if I would say the main purpose, the purpose statement of the book of Philippians is to uh, encourage continual participation in God's work. Continual participation in the salvation of mankind through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is entirely concerned with. And this is actually the backdrop in which he outlines through the entire second chapter. Is he's wanting to look at these people and he's wanting to say, good job, now keep going. You're participating in Christ's work, now keep it up. And again, it's a very encouraging, very positive one. Some scholars even look to why he's putting this focus of humility here um, is less of, again, a rebuke, meaning uh, that they've done something wrong and they need this rebuke of humility here, but more of maybe even just a pastoral warning against a disposition that they may already share or have. Um, we know from other writers uh, and authors that uh, Philippi uh, was a great city. It was a, um, a, a, a 
a very influential city. Uh, it had a lot of things that were going on. Even, even Luke in Acts 16 describes it as the leading city in the district of Macedonia. Um, Philippians are noted with, in lots of places, as having pride in their city. Uh, Philippian pride was a real thing. I don't know what mascot they had. Um, I'm going to guess like Panther because Philippian Panther pride would make sense. But whatever it is, they had pride in of themselves. And this is something that we can relate to, right? Because where, where do we live? The great nation of Texas, right? And as the old joke says, how can you figure out if somebody's from Texas? You don't have to. They'll tell you in the first two minutes of talking to them, right? Uh, Texans are marked with this kind of, again, pride that we know carries with us. Uh, if you've moved here from somewhere else or if you ever lived somewhere else, you've seen the stark oddity. I went to college in Arkansas, uh, and I was shocked uh, that, that Arkansas history um, was not Texas history. Uh, I realized, oh, wow, Texas history, we made a whole bigger deal than it really probably should have been. Uh, but, it, but again, that's because we were from Texas. And so it may be that these Philippians, having this natural disposition towards pride, Paul's going to come alongside of them and say, hey, guys, just so you don't fall in this pitfall of pride, be humble. You guys aren't messing it up yet, but I'm just going to encourage you, keep walking in humility. That's going to be the key to participation into the gospel work. Again, I don't know. This is what a lot of scholars think, and I think it is, it is at least applicable here. Um, but again, what we, what we find here is we, fe- we find Paul making an argument in this chapter that hinges on one verse, particularly verse 5, where he introduces this concept of having the same mind of Christ. This is going to be a hinge not only for us to start with and look back to the beginning of this chapter, but is a hinge that will move us forward throughout the rest of this whole letter. Uh, This is an important concept that Paul's highlighting is he's saying that the reason the Philippian church can be unified is because they can be marked by humility. They can seek to be unified in humility to advance the gospel cause, the kingdom of heaven. And if that message is true for the Philippians, then that message is all the more true even for us because this is a mark of a co-laborer for Christ is that they seek to advance the kingdom with a motivation of humility. This is why I'm making the leap and going back to our tenants and saying, uh, emphasizing hospitality here because I think this is a key tenant to understanding hospitality is we can't be marked as people of hospitality if we are not first marked with humility. The key to hospitality is going to be our humility. And again, why is this the motivation we have presented here? I think it's the motivation because it's the motivation presented by Christ himself. I mean, why did Jesus come in the first place? We just got off the Christmas season celebrating his birth as a God and man here in with us incarnate. And why did Jesus even come? Well, Scripture alone testifies that. In Mark 2, it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke says it this way, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 10.10 says that that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How does he go about this? How does he go about this great work? Mark again says in chapter 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the attitude Paul is calling for in gospel participation. 
If we're going to understand the attitude we have to in the spreading of the gospel, then we have to understand the attitude of the one who guaranteed the gospel for us. Verse 3, back in our chapter, expounds on this. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The key to hospitality is going to be humility. And the key to humility, as defined by Paul here, is counting others more significant than yourself. I think this is a great gauge, a great litmus test for us. Is how are we doing on humility? Well, how are we doing on counting others more significant than ourselves? John Piper put it this way. He said in his writing on this, the point was not what others are. The point is what you count others to be. This isn't about others and what they deserve to be. This is all about you and what you count others to be. So how do you count others more significant than yourself? How does it even work? If we recognize that our nature is selfish, that we want to count ourselves more significant, how on earth would we be able to count others more significant? Well, we got to keep going backwards off our hinge verse, back into actually verse 1. Paul already has stated this as part of his argument in what we read. Verse 1 says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in, in, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... What happens here, all between these commas, essentially, is Paul is listing four incentives for why we should respond with humility. Four assertions to say this is true, and thus humility is really the only natural outcome that comes from this. This, this is a little bit hard in English, um, namely because in Greek, uh, and we can delve too far into this, and I don't want to get lost in it, but there's no verb here. Uh, and really what's happening, it gets a lot into what, what's called first-class conditional statements. Um, which, what I mean by that is truly what Paul says and what we read in English of if there is gives us the natural almost reasoning or reckoning to say that there's a state where it isn't. Right? If there is encouragement in Christ, well, then we think, well, maybe there's not. There may be a case that there's not an encouragement in Christ. But this actually doesn't read that way in the Greek. And with the idea of these clauses, is what, what Paul's really saying here is he's saying these things are true. These things are present. I think the NIV gets closest to this when they, they give the word um, have. You have is actually how the NIV says this, these things. And so I think we could read through it um, and appropriately read through Paul's argument by saying this. Since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort and love, since you have participation in the Spirit, since you have affection and sympathy, you can also have humility. I think that's what Paul is trying to say here. And I think this is where we can actually stop and find our first point of application this morning. Because again, if we're asking ourselves the question, well, how can I have humility? How can I be marked by somebody with humility? Well, Paul says it and Christ said it. Well, simply reflect on what I have given you. Reflect on what I have already done. Reflect on the encouragement of Christ. Reflect on comfort and love. Reflect on participation in the Spirit. Reflect on the affection and the sympathy I've shown you. You have these things. Dwell on them, and the only natural byproduct will be humility. 
So even for myself, I wrote off of each one of these tenets as I began to ask myself this week, does this line up even with the life that I'm living? From the first point I wrote, what are Christ's commands, teachings, encouragements towards humility? How does his story, how does what he said, how does God's word transform me into a person that would be marked by humility? Or from the second, where have I found comfort in his love or the love of one of his followers? This is one of the great privileges of getting to be on staff here is because I'm privy to a lot of stories where somebody is really hurting and they go to somebody else and they receive love and that together they are unified and encouraged in Christ. And I get, I get countless uh, stories like that told from this congregation, which Chris is very proud of and shares uh, very freely with his staff. Or from the third point, um, what are the stories that I've heard or been a part of that I can't explain by any human doing? That the only explanation for this is spirit moving. I feel like these are the stories that I hear and am encouraged so oftentimes by missionaries or when I consider the church abroad or again when I just hear the acts of faithfulness of those even here in this own congregation that all of a sudden one simple little act is manifested even bigger than I ever could imagine and the only way to explain it is he's not doing this on his own. They're not doing it in their own capacity. Rather, they're participating in the spirit who has the ability to do it. And then on this last tenant, I wrote, stop and really think about who you are. If you want to be humble, stop and really think about who you are. What do you deserve in the face of a perfect and holy God? And at that moment, when you feel that tinge of what you deserve, now think on what it feels like to get not what you deserve, but instead receive affection and sympathy I think this is what Paul is doing, is when we dwell on these things, we have no other conclusion than to come to a state of humility. Tim Keller, another pastor, uh, wrote it this way, and I thought it was good. I put it on the screen. Uh, it says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling, I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I like this last part. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. I thought that was a good word, and I think Paul would approve of this wording that uh, Dr. Keller shares with us, is because I think when we consider ourselves in following Christ rightly, we must do so in an attitude that considers ourselves less and considers others more. This is why Chris has said this before, and we say it often here amongst our staff, that if we ever think too high of ourselves, least we forget to be about the business of God, may God shut these doors. May South Spring not exist, because we don't want to be about the business of ourselves. We want to be about the business of God. I think this is a good prayer as we consider the pillar of hospitalities. hospitality. May we think less of ourselves, more of others, and the most of Christ. And now that Paul has established this argument in verse 1 through 4 that we've drawn this concept that's helpful for um, hospitality, he goes and continues and in essence concludes this argument um, by pointing to Christ. And in doing so, he's going to illustrate the only ability 
So it's previous he's illustrated our motivation to be humble. Now he's going to illustrate our only ability to be humble. And that is looking not at our own abilities, but at the ability of Christ. This is where we're going to get and see a key concept for devotion. Our second pillar that we were considering this morning. Again, let's come around back to our hinge verse in verse 5. Having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I think if we were trying to come up with a good, simplified statement about what devotion actually is, I think this would be fitting, having the same mind of Christ. I think if we want to say, are we really devoted people? Well, let's ask ourselves, do we have our own mind? Do we have our own will? Do we have our own plans, our own thoughts, or do we have the thoughts and will and mind of Christ? This is where Chris spent the vast majority of his last weeks in his sermon talking about being wholeheartedly committed to the will of Christ, considering his mind, his ways, his will higher than our own. And I'll confess to you, it's at this consideration that I am oftentimes tempted to think, well, that's unattainable. I mean, like, I've met me. Some of you've met me. Some of you know that guy. I don't know if I would say his life is marked by having the mind of Christ in all circumstances and in all thoughts and in all ways. And I think, I think in that moment, I, I, I almost become despairingly and so because I think there's really nothing I can do to change that. By nature, that's who I am. But in that moment where I'm tempted to have despair, I think this is what Paul speaks into this passage to this church and to us today as he points out the very problem in our thinking. It isn't that somehow we get or we arrive or we achieve. It isn't somehow that we get to the same mind of Christ. It is instead that he has given us that same mind. That's why in our hinge verse he says, this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's the one giving it. You don't attain it. It's not by the work we can accomplish. It's not like we have a shot at being humble in our own strength. The only reason we have motivation to participate in any of this is because Christ has given us the ability to attain to his righteousness. I think this is exactly why um, Paul in verses six through eight continues to explain uh, that this is truly a gift that only Christ is the guarantor to be able to give. Only he has the ability to give this because he by and of himself is the net essence of humility. He embodies it. Look down. Uh, let's start in our hinge verse again. Verse five. Have, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wrote it this way to help me remember these three um, verses. Christ is the embodiment of humility and yet he humbles himself. Why? So that we could share in his humility. I think this goes along with those three verses. In the first verse, uh, in verse 6, he is the embodiment of humility. Christ was, as the passage makes us known to us, the form of God. This Greek word form, morphe, is, is an outward appearance of an inward reality. The, in, the NIV translates this as nature, and I think that's fitting as well. His essence is God. This is greater strengthened in the next verse when it talks about he, he doesn't consider equality with God, 
meaning that he has equality with God. The Greek word for equality is esos. You might know it as things like isosceles triangle for all you uh, geometry people. All having the same, of the same nature. This is what equality, this is what having the likeness, the form, the nature of God. Christ shares the nature of God, and yet he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It isn't that he doesn't, he doesn't, he can't grasp it, meaning like he can't understand it. Um, It really is more physical than that. He considers this equality in the glory of God something not to be held onto, not to be secured for himself and himself alone, not to be grasped just for his enjoyment, but rather he holds it lightly and shares it. This is why the embodiment of humility also humbles himself. Verse 7, Christ emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, this isn't to say that God gave, or Jesus gave up being God. We couldn't have gotten through two years of the book of John and come to that conclusion. Time and time again, we see him proclaiming this witness of himself, that he is God. We see that here in the same passage. Rather, what it's more communicating, this ungrasping, this letting go, um, this not being able to grasp on, we should throw us back to John 17, um, where in verse 5, we, it was helpful when we considered uh, how Jesus laid aside the glory and the freedom that his former manner of existence afforded him when he became a man. Essentially, he chose to not participate in the same level of freedoms and power and glory in order to become man. It isn't that he isn't God. He made a choice to humble himself, his very nature. One of the uh, writers that I came across wrote an illustration and talked about this, this being like Shaquille O'Neal playing basketball with a fifth grader. My guess, I had never met the man, but my guess he's not going to play the same way against the fifth grader that he played when he played in the NBA, right? It's not that he doesn't have the ability. It's not that he possesses the same amount of strength in things. It's that he's made a different choice. And this is what God does. Jesus has humbled himself, being the nature of God. This is made clear again by what Paul says. It's not that he emptied himself of something. The passage doesn't say that. What does the passage say? It says he emptied himself. He gave up himself. This would harken back to Isaiah's prophecy in in chapter 52, verse 12, where the prophet wrote that the servant of the Lord poured out himself, emptied himself to death. Christ doesn't give up his nature as God. Christ instead gives up a crown for a cross. He gives up his glory for a grave. Christ makes a choice. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The embodiment of humility, humbling himself so we can share in the humility. This is how devotion to God is possible. Because God secures our ability to be devoted to him as he is devoted to God. In essence, We can have a choice not to be devoted. He has no choice but to be devoted to God. And in his devotion to God, he has secured our ability to be devoted to him. This is what John in 1 John 4.19 writes, We love, why? Because he first loved us. Humility is his righteous act. 
We know that our best of acts, according to Isaiah, our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags in front of a holy God. We don't have the ability to procure this for ourselves, but we aren't left in that state. This is what Paul continues to write in verse, chapter 3, verse 9, about Christ and about us being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is something given to us. I think it would be inappropriate if we skipped the invitation here for our second point of application, which is simply, have you traded your unrighteousness for his righteousness? Have you considered all of this pursuit, all of these conversations about these pillars unattainable because there's something that you say in yourself that there's nothing I can do to attain that, and yet in that state you've never asked Christ the one who has attained and secured that for you, who offers that gift willingly for you and to you, if you've never stopped and asked him to exchange your unrighteousness for his righteousness in the salvation work that he offers up on the death on the cross and the proof of his ability to give life through his resurrection, then today, today, let it be the day of salvation. Don't pass up today without putting your faith in Christ. Paul continues and finishes his argument talking about how secure this is. How secure it is that Christ can give humility to us um, is because even the same truth that, Matthew, truth that Matthew tells us is that when we are humble, we will then be glorified. This is what God does uh, to secure Christ's place as humble and to guarantee his work on the cross as complete. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. When Christ humbled himself, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think this is a good way that we can uh, conclude with those words in mind. John's going to come back up and he's going to lead us in a time of invitation. And we always do this because we've, we've tossed out some points of application, right? Scripture has been spoken and we know it returns without void. And so um, we ask you to consider it. It may be that, again, like we said, that this is your first consideration of salvation. And if you don't really know how to have that conversation, you can, there'll be people at the right side of the room where you can come up uh, and you can talk to me or one, or one of the people up front uh, and be able to ask, what does this look like? This may be the time that you just need to sing or sit reflectively and be convicted by the word of scripture, looking at all those assertions that, that Paul says are true and then look at why then my life isn't motivated by humility, considering others better than ourselves. Or maybe it is simply that uh, you know that this is something that you don't want to do alone. This journey of trying to follow Christ, uh, having his mind in humility is something you need a church to come around side of you. And if you've met with Lance or the Welcome Home team and you want to come forward and make your membership known, this is the time to do that. But whatever it is and however it is that you need to reply, I invite you to stand, I invite you to sit, I invite you to come forward and kneel. Whatever posture you need to take, I invite you to take and respond to God's word as he's declared it today.